This is the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Center podcast. Discussions and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, highlights from the second session of the symposium Law and the Environment, Designing a Transatlantic Agenda. On January 7, 2009, the Atlantic Council of the United States, in cooperation with LexisNexis, held a symposium in New York City on Law and the Environment, Designing a Transatlantic Agenda. The goal of the symposium was to explore U.S. and European approaches to environmental regulation and international environmental law as a precursor to discussing how the United States and European Union might better cooperate in protecting the environment. The symposium's second session was entitled U.S. and European Approaches to International Environmental Law. It featured Catherine Regwell, Professor of International Law, who served as Vice Dean of the Faculty from 2004 to 2006 at University College London Law Faculty. Paolo Galizzi is a Clinical Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Sustainable Development Legal Initiative at the Leitner Center for International Law and Justice at Fordham Law School. Edith Brown-Weiss is the Francis Cabell Brown Professor of International Law and co-director of the Joint Degree in Law and Government at Georgetown University Law School. The session was moderated by Richard Stewart of New York University School of Law, who also directs the school's Center on Environmental and Land Use Law. Uh, We have three presenters. Uh, Catherine Regwell will be our first speaker. Thank you very much. I was actually asked to address a number of items, climate change and international environmental law, hard and soft law, and uh, wildlife and uh, biological conservation. I don't think I can do all of that in eight to ten minutes. Um, And so given the nature of the comments uh, in the previous panel, I was perhaps present in deciding to focus on two major areas. One, the EU is an international actor and making some remarks more generally about its role in the international environmental legal process. And secondly, touching on climate change, um, I'm not an expert in the cap and trade system in the European uh, emissions trading system, but I did think it was important in the light of the legislative package that was agreed in December to touch on that and to look more broadly at where I see some synergies between the EU and the US approach and perhaps some areas of controversy, some of which we've already had highlighted. Uh, But with that climate change focus, I did want just to observe that I think 2009 will clearly, because of Copenhagen looming at the end, be the year of climate change as far as focus on international environmental matters is concerned. But I think it would be a shame that if that and the global economic crisis uh, causes uh, backpedaling on other key environmental issues. And one that does spring to mind is, of course, the conservation of biological diversity. I think it's more or less gone under the radar that the parties to the CBD agreed that by 2010 they wanted to try and halt the escalating loss of biodiversity. Now, I think that target is now long gone. 
gone, but we've still got two years before it's actually upon us. And in the EU, the decision was taken in 2001 to halt the um, escalating biological diversity loss by 2010. And a recent review suggests that that is a target that's unlikely to be met without significant action within the next two years. I think it's interesting that those sorts of issues have more or less dropped off the radar and issues of climate change to the forefront. And given our setting, I would simply observe that the Convention on Biodiversity is one of the most widely supported environmental instruments. There are 191 state parties to it. There are three outliers to the CBD regime. They make interesting company, the United States, Iraq, and Somalia. Um, now, there are obviously imperfections with the CBD, but I simply think one of the themes that might come out of this session is the extent to which bringing the US on board some environmental treaties, whether it's the CBD, the Law of the Sea Convention for its marine environmental provisions, or hopefully the imminent ratification of the 1996 protocol to the London Convention, all provide international platforms for US and EU and obviously wider international cooperation. Let me turn in a couple of minutes just to focus on the EU approach to international environmental law. I must admit, looking at the panel previously and this one, I've had a little trouble grappling with what the EU approach actually is. I find myself thinking of some newspaper headlines, Brussels, the EU, as if it's this kind of monolithic entity that's divorced from member states. Um, because to, to some extent, it's a reflection of 27 member states having to find common ground in terms of EU legislation. And I think that does give it a particular import in international negotiations to know that a common position from the EU uh, is, in fact, the, the tip of the iceberg and reflects a lot of bartering amongst 27 really quite now diverse member states in terms of the state of their environment, their ability to economically address or legislatively address environmental problems. Uh, so from that point of view, it perhaps offers now more than ever a prototype of how those different capacities can come into play in terms of overall solutions. Um, Institutionally, however, I think it's also important to note that the European, it's the European community, not the EU, which has international legal personality. Um, but for the vast majority of environmental matters, the European community doesn't have exclusive competence. It can't go out and sign up to a treaty that then has immediate impact on all of the member states. Rather, these are areas of shared or mixed competence. So the EU and the member states operate side by side. The EU then can legislate to the extent that it has competence over the subject matter as conferred under the constitutive treaties and the member states legislate in their areas. Um, the EC is only allowed at the table if states agree and have a participation clause in the treaty itself that allows for it. So the EC can be a party to the Law of the Sea Convention or climate change or biodiversity, but not, for example, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, because in 1973 they weren't thinking about the EC in that context. An amendment to the treaty that would have allowed its participation never came into force. 
Now, of course, that hasn't stopped the EC regulating in the context of trade in endangered species. It's simply done it off its own bat because there was the political will so to do to harmonize the EC approach through regulation in the absence of its ability to participate in the treaty. Uh, but even where the EC does participate uh, in a treaty alongside the member states, there are other implications. Um, one, from an international point of view, is that one can look enviously at the EU context and say that member state implementation is then buttressed by EC, EC law, which can have direct effect and be enforceable through some of the mechanisms we were discussing earlier. But recently, what's also come to the fore is that if the EC is a party to a treaty and it has self-executing or directly effective provisions, then it may be possible for, say, a French litigant to rely directly on the provisions of a treaty instrument to which its own state is not a party or which it hasn't properly implemented. So the legal consequence of the EC being a party to a treaty is that it can then be relied on if directly effective, and this is a big if, before the courts of the member states. So that gives international environmental law a further route, if you will, for accessing the domestic jurisdiction and to be relied upon by litigants in the domestic legal process. Um, the final point I would make about the, um, uh, about the EU in, in the legislative context is that um, I mentioned that for most agreements it's mixed because the competence isn't exclusive. There's a few exceptions. One is fisheries. So when the straddling stocks agreement was concluded to the law of the sea agreement, um, a convention, um, apart from where member states were speaking for dependent territories over which they have external relations powers, it was only the EU representative that could speak on behalf of both the Union and the member states. And I've heard maybe a, a complete lie that the Italian representative sought to say something on the Italian's behalf and everyone pretended that he or she hadn't said anything because they had no competence in those matters. Um, so that obviously has a particular impact in the fisheries context, but otherwise, as I mentioned, it's, it's mixed. The last point on the constitutional uh, lawmaking side is that um, most matters now are co-decision as well, and that was true of the climate change package as well, which means there is the legal wrangling between the Council of Ministers and the European Parliament before a measure is passed with significant horse trading and bargaining that goes into that process. So the climate change package of measures that was agreed, I think, much to the relief of the Czech representative in Poznan, who the Czechs taking over the EU presidency, was able to announce on the eve of the uh, conclusion of the, the COP in Poznan that the package had gone through after 11 months of wrangling between the, uh, the European Parliament and the Commission. Okay, well, turning then to climate change itself, um, what are the prospects for further cooperation? Um, it's clear that the EU has been marking itself um, as taking the lead on climate change. Um, EU policy documents have titles like combating climate change, the EU leads the way. Um, and I think there are a number of areas of common cause with the United States. I think particularly in the area of developing new technologies, either because of reality of transitioning to a lower carbon economy, uh, issues of energy security, 
obviously issues of commercialization of new technologies and opportunities in this context. Um, I think carbon capture and storage, carbon sequestration, is a good example of where a degree of international cooperation and consensus can achieve relatively swift results. Um, I think it's telling here that this is particularly the context of removing perceived international legal obstacles to the development of the technology. So not the creation of new rules per se, but looking at existing instruments and questioning whether they facilitate the development of the new technology. In the context of CCS, carbon capture and storage, of course, this necessitated amendment to the global instrument on dumping, the London Convention, it's 1996 protocol, um, which was amended with effect from the 10th of February 2007 to allow the deep seabed, the subseabed, disposal of CO2. They've clearly rejected the idea of dispersal of CO2 in the water column. Um, now, the Australians, before they became a party to the Kyoto Protocol, were quite keen on this, but clearly there was global consensus. Whatever we're going to do with CCS, we have to make sure that we don't have a legal obstacle to it. Now, the 1996 Protocol also adopts a precautionary approach, and you've had guidelines established under the London uh, Convention uh, to provide for the streaming measures. For the European Union, of course, there is also the regional approach under the OSPAR Convention, and decisions were taken pursuant to that convention, likewise to permit the subsidiary bestowal of CCS. Um, so both global and regional approaches were important for the EU. Uh, for the US, which, as I said, is not yet a party to the 1996 protocol, it seems to me that becoming a party to it for the sake of providing a stable legal framework, or at least removing the doubt that this would otherwise constitute unlawful dumping or disposal of CO2, uh, would be a desirable way forward. Um, now, CCS has been part of the EU's recent suite of climate change measures uh, with a directive on carbon capture and storage, which paves the way, amongst other things, for the allocation of 300 million ETS allowances to large-scale CCS projects. And some countries, my own, the United Kingdom, are currently involved in a bidding exercise for some pilot projects. Um, CCS is perhaps, for the purposes of our discussion today, not the best example insofar as um, there seems to be a high level of cooperation already between the EU and the US, though I'd be interested to learn from others around the table how effective the high-level dialogue on climate change, clean energy, and sustainable development uh, that was inaugurated following the G8 at Glen Eagles has actually been. There's only been two meetings. What's available in the public domain is not terribly forthcoming. <laughs> it appears to exclude CEOs, other stakeholders from relevant industry and NGOs uh, in this high-level dialogue process, um, and uh, doesn't seem to have actually produced even significant soft law declarations. Um, perhaps another um, area to look at in terms of cooperation is the Carbon Sequestration Leadership Forum, uh, which is a grouping of 21 national governmental entities and the uh, European Commission. And if you look at their website, what's interesting is that nearly 150 stakeholders have self-registered uh, to keep abreast of what's happening with carbon sequestration. Uh, so there's a huge amount of interest here. Um, and uh, possibility for cooperation amongst stakeholders. Um, 
I've been told I have a couple of minutes left only. Please conclude soon. Um, the, uh, the other two points I wanted to make, maybe picking up on the nanotechnology point raised earlier, but, but looking at the climate change context, um, there is a lot of interest at the moment in other technological fixes to the climate change problem, not just carbon capture and storage, but the notion of albedo enhancement, putting large umbrellas in space to help cool the global atmosphere and issues of ocean fertilization. Now, in contrast with CCS, with ocean fertilization, the idea of putting iron filings to attract CO2 in the ocean was viewed with some dismay by the parties to the London Convention, whom recently expressed caution with respect to this process and voted in October um, on a decision which says that let's put a hold on actual exploitation but provide legitimate scientific research to take place, otherwise states shouldn't do it. Um, and that raises the question of what is legitimate scientific research and again the extent to which science as it has with climate change will drive future collaboration um, in these areas. Um, the final point I would make in the context of climate change and areas for cooperation is simply to note that in the EU suite of measures, uh, there has been this 20% mark, which we've discussed already. Um, it's perhaps just important to focus on the fact there are three aspects to this. It's the 20% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions linked to raising that to 30% subject to global agreement. There's the 20% um, reduction in terms of the uh, consumption of energy. Um, so making energy efficiency gains. Uh, energy efficiency tends to go a little off the radar in terms of responses to climate change, but clearly this is part of it. And then the third, of, of course, is 20% in terms of increasing reliance on renewables. The European perspective is that these touch on real changes in patterns of consumption and production. And I think that is a key difference between the EU and the United States. Whatever one needs to unpick in terms of what the real effect is of these sorts of targets of 20 percent. The, the rhetoric and the intention is to make real changes in, in behavior by industrial and uh, household consumers and so on. And I think there is underlying this a kind of, um, what can I say, additionality ethical debate um, that technological fixes are all very well, but ultimately something has to be done to reduce reliance on carbon emissions, either because of reductions in carbon-based fuels or because one's taking a moral, a perceived moral high ground and saying it's the right thing to do for the environment. And I think there is that, that thread in uh, European environmental ecological consciousness which underplays part of the debate. Um, and it has been hinted at, only hinted at, in the context of the recent suite of climate change measures um, and responses to products coming from states that don't have uh, significant climate change legislation. What do we do to address that imbalance? There's even been the suggestion made that border tax or other adjustments could be made on countries that don't take the right position on climate change negotiations. I'm sure there are parts of the Commission that view those sorts of statements with horror, with an eye on any future ability to defend measures before the WTO, uh, but there is that rhetoric out there. Uh, Professor Galizzi will be the, uh, the next uh, presenter here. Thank you for having me, and what I'm going to try to do, I'm going to 
shorten my remarks in a spirit of solidarity. We'll show that the European Emission Trading Scheme is working already. Uh, she's <laughs> used some of my credits and I've cut it down. But what I wanted to say is that I think I welcome the opportunity to have a dialogue between the European Union and the United States about moving the environmental agenda forward. I think for too long there hasn't been a sufficient dialogue on these issues and I think for too long there has been a lot of misunderstanding between the European Union and the United States on how to move the agenda forward. And I just wanted to focus my remark on four areas to just see where these two entities can work together. First of all, I just wanted to note that international environmental law has grown enormously over the past 40 years. Since Stockholm 1972, we now have rules of customary law that deal with environmental protection. We have a huge number of environmental treaties. Yet, and that's the first issue that I wanted to look at, if we look at the environmental governance, at the international environmental governance that these number of treaties and rules have created, we have serious shortcomings. This is what Professor Stewart was mentioning we do not really have a global international organization that deals specifically with environmental issues. We have a program, UNEF, that does a fantastic job with the limited resources that it has available. We have the Commission on Sustainable Development that does what it can. We have the Global Environmental Facility, but we do not have a focal point, an international specialized organization, such as we have, for example, on labor issues, on financial issues. Why do we have a World Health Organization and why don't we have an international environmental organization? If the environment is as important as health is, why don't we move forward with creating such an organization? And France and Germany in particular have taken the lead to support the establishment of such an organization, but not much has happened since Chirac and Jospin a few years ago mentioned the need for the creation of such an organization. Of course, what is this organization going to look like? Is it a specialized agency of the UN? Where is it going to be based? What are the competences of this organization? Should we have an international environmental court alongside the possible global environmental organization? But clearly, the system of governance that we have now doesn't seem to work. We really need a voice for the environment. We really need a global voice that, in my view, could be placed in a stronger global environmental organization. The second important issue that I wanted to touch upon is the principles, the fundamental principles of international environmental law that they seem to cause still a lot of tension between the European Union and the United States. If we cannot agree on, for example, precaution, what is the precautionary principle and whether you like to call it approach or principle, I think pretty much we're talking about risk. How do we understand risk? How much risk are we prepared to accept? Europeans seem to have a lower tolerance for risk. They seem to have risk aversion that sometimes Americans do not understand. At the same time, very often Americans think that Europeans are paranoid, that they're afraid of pretty much everything that they don't understand. Another fundamental principle, common but differentiated responsibility, that's a fundamental principle that not only the Europeans but the developing world is strongly attached to. And unless there is an understanding of what common responsibility means, what differentiated role we should all play in addressing the crucial global environmental problems that we face, I think it's going to be difficult to move forward. Sustainable development. What is sustainable development? The US still doesn't seem to accept the notion of the right to development in the first place, let alone the notion of sustainable development. But how can we not, at this stage, 
try to reach an agreement, and you know, I hesitate to talk about some other fundamental principle, particular intergenerational equity, because I have Editor Brown Weiss here, and <laughs> I wouldn't want to say anything on this issue, but again, we have leaders in the United States, too, that have talked about this fundamental principle. How do we start this dialogue? Do we go back and revisit the Rio Declaration? Do we need a new World Summit, like the Earth Summit in 1992, where we came together and we managed to forge a declaration where we accepted that we had differences, but we said, let's call it approach to the precaution principle. But we managed to find a consensus to move forward, to at least understand what were the guiding principles for global action on the protection of the environment. Of course, and that's the third area that I wanted to talk about. <coughs> the European Union and the United States cannot work alone. The global environmental organization that I was advocating and this debate on principle must include the developing world. Many of the resources that we're trying to protect are found in the developing world. Climate change cannot be successfully tackled without the developing world and developing countries' participation. How do you engage the developing world in this discussion? And how do you form a united front within the European Union and the United States that then can be used as a platform to start discussions and negotiations with India, China, Brazil, the G77, <laughs> to try to move the environmental agenda forward? And I think. What we need to realize is that very often in the developing world, there is a sense of betrayal. There is a sense that the West has made many promises, that the West has made many commitments, and yet has delivered very little on environmental issues and other issues. Secondly, we need to recognize that for the developing world, very often development is a priority. Development and poverty eradication are crucial issues that developing countries want to champion and want to address. But I think there is already a platform that we can use to move forward, a platform that was actually agreed by the world community at the Millennium Summit in 2000. The Millennium Declaration contains a specific number of goals, the Millennium Development Goals, that include an environmental goal. MDG 7, ensure environmental sustainability, is very often a forgotten goal in the MDGs, but right there you have an agreement between the developing world and the developed world to try to address some of the most pressing global environmental issues. And if we look at some of the targets that were agreed in 2000 in the Millennium Declaration and then elaborating in the MDGs, we have, for example, the goal of reducing biological diversity lost by 2010. We have the goal to halve by 2015 the population, the portion of the population without sustainable access to drinking water. And if we were to commit ourselves to making the MDGs a reality, then we could gain credibility with the developing world to move the environmental agenda forward. And finally, I wanted to talk briefly about climate change. Climate change, again, I think that Europe sometimes is misunderstood, and I will defend Europe here. I think I was given the task of defending Europe. And I think Europe is trying and learning from its mistakes. I think the European Emission Trading Scheme, the first period, was a mistake. I think Europe learned from its lessons. It learned that giving, auction, giving all these uh, allowances for free and having an overload location really didn't make much sense. The second commitment period, we'll see how that works. I mean, it started on 1st January 2008. It's going to end in December 2012. We actually understood that, for example, transportation was clearly something that we needed to include, and aviation will be included from 2012 in the European Emission Trading Scheme. 
the new commitment period that will start on 1st January 2013 is now being extended to eight years. So it will be from 1st January 2013 to 2020. Because again, we realize that maybe five years is too short a time to adjust to the changes that are necessary. The European Union, which originally opposed the market-based mechanisms that were introduced in the Kyoto Protocol, upon the insistence of the United States, has now actually embraced those mechanisms, and we largely use such mechanisms to achieve, hopefully, its reduction obligations. But I think, again, when we're talking about climate change, Europe and the United States need to be very careful about the rest of the world. And I think the clean development mechanism that was designed to ensure the participation of the developing world, the voluntary participation, has largely failed in the poorest parts of the world. Africa only has 2.2% of projects on CDM. The CDM projects are largely concentrated in China, Brazil, and India. The rest of the world isn't benefiting. The CDM is about climate change reduction, but it's also about sustainable development. It's about transfer of technology. There is a trade-off that the developing world had agreed to that the developing world seems to believe has not actually been achieved. The other area where there is a need, I think, for the European Union and the US to engage is right, the reduced emission for deforestation and degradation. It's a huge debate that is ongoing. The Europeans seem to have now backtracked on the promises to allow the emissions from red to be included in the emission trading system. And there is a lot of discomfort in the developing world about what is going on. And again, maybe having the US on board and try to reach an understanding of how to move the red agenda forward could help both the US and the European Union and moving the global environmental agenda forward. What I wanted to say to conclude was that, I mean, at the end of the day, Europeans, Americans, developing world, we all live in the same planet, and therefore, we, you know, we may want to continue disagreeing, but we may want to continue disagreeing in a planet that we can actually live in. Thank you very much. And finally, uh, Edith Brown Weiss will be our last commenter. I just, it's a great pleasure to be at the same table with her because we are both veterans of the same first year section at the Harvard Law School. <laughs> and none, I guess, the worse for it, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. It's an honor for me to be here, and I want to compliment the organizers of this really important event and, and what ho hopefully is the launching of, of other activities. I want to put my remarks in three contexts. One is, as the United States renews its participation in international environmental law, what can it do? Uh, the second is in the context of climate, and the third is to look a bit uh, at uh, issues of compliance and uh, perhaps intergenerational issues depending upon the time frame. Let me take the first of those. It seems to me that this is a unique opportunity in the United States uh, to uh, reassess and renew its very active participation and leadership in international environmental law, and that it can do so by rejoining or joining international agreements. Uh, it shows a willingness to work together with other countries on shared problems. It provides a voice at the table. It encourages transparency and accountability, uh, very important values uh, in the United States. There are at least four or five agreements that come to mind. Uh, the first is the Law of the Sea Convention, where the Department of Defense has long advocated ratification there. Uh, President Bush sent it to the Senate uh, for ratification. Issues of customary international law would probably not extend to transit through straits. There are important marine pollution provisions, and there are new issues about uh, extensions of the continental shelf and the continental margin to the North 
to the North Pole. Uh, this is a case in which the Senate still has to give two-thirds advice and consent of the Senate. Then it goes to the White House, and the White House would have to send it in for ratification. Uh, secondly is the Biodiversity Convention, uh, to be sure, and there are a number of people around the table here who were involved in that initially. Uh, but I think uh, where we have only three countries, uh, 191 countries, to put it another way, have now joined the Biodiversity Convention. It would be useful for the United States, as it reassesses this, to join in the Biodiversity Convention, to have a voice at the table and an important forum for a discussion of biodiversity and climate, as well as the global biodiversity goals. This, then, is the case, again, for Senate ratification, which has to proceed. When we come to such issues as the UNEP Stockholm uh, Persistent Organic Pollutants Convention, a very important convention, uh, there we come to the fact that it's not just does it go through the Senate, two-thirds advice and consent of the Senate. The Basel Convention on Hazardous Waste got two-thirds advice and consent of the Senate, but then it has to go to the White House. And the United States has always been very reluctant to join agreements for which the implementing legislation is not in place because it's the United States' perspective that if they join international agreements, they want to be in compliance. That has been particularly the case in, in, in the international environmental field. And so there, in, the, in terms of POPs, and there are people around the table who know a lot about this, it's important to get the domestic implementing legislation that is tied up in, in terms of Tosca and in terms of Basel. We have something similar on the Convention on Hazardous Waste. So you do need the implementing legislation in place, but I think renewed efforts on that from the United States' point of view uh, would be very useful for in the international community. And then there's the climate change uh, um, uh, situation where the United States signed but did not ratify uh, the Kyoto Protocol. Um, problems, of course, that arose uh, in the Senate because there were not obligations that also applied to those countries that were not uh, Annex B countries. Um, I do note that the Australian government just actually, when, when they changed governments, they actually joined the Kyoto Protocol. But there are political reasons in the United States that could make that difficult. Uh, but I think if, to the extent that innovative ways might be found, uh, to establish a target and timetable that was agreed upon by all countries, whether or not it be made as a part of the Kyoto Protocol or under the UN Convention, Framework Convention, or even uh, as it was done for the Law of the Sea Agreement, an implementing uh, measure uh, adopted by the United Nations, which it did for the Law of the Sea on the seabed. It adopted an implementing agreement, uh, which then substituted uh, eventually for the provisions of the Law of the Sea Agreement related uh, to the seabed. This thing brings, and, and uh, the uh, other things were mentioned in, in previous, uh, in previous uh, presentations. This then brings me to the question of climate. And it seems to me climate is important internationally. It's important for the EU and the US because it is the one problem which is truly long-term and intergenerational. And how we address that is very important for the whole planet. But most importantly, we're saying something to our children. And when we talk about climate, the missing element here, it seems to me, has been how do we get young people involved? How do we get, how do we educate young people? Because they're the ones that are going to have to be dealing with that. And I urge on the perspective of climate to put it in the long-term frame. It's an excellent opportunity for the United States and the European Union for collaboration, and maybe North America in collaboration with the EU. I want to focus on the climate and trade issues. Uh, both the European Union, uh, Canada as of 2010, Australia plans for a cap-and-trade program, and there's legislation that has been mentioned by Boyd and has been introduced uh, into the United States uh, Senate and into the uh, House of uh, Representatives 
that I think we can anticipate will be passed, although maybe not in 2009 in some form. It raises some important issues. If you have uh, uh, an emissions trading system and there is pressure to have permission allowances uh, required at the border, purchased at the border, if in fact you do not control your caps and trades, which appears in the major legislation in the U.S. Congress, then that does raise questions of, of consistency with the WTO, and particularly Article 3 of the WTO, uh, and uh, because these measures, one could argue, go to the process by which something is produced. There are also discussions about carbon intensity standards, and carbon intensity standards will raise questions about compatibility with the, with the TBT, the Technical <coughs> Barriers to Trade Agreement. There are questions about labeling, which also raises questions uh, related to the Technical Barriers to, to Trade Agreement. One of the issues is can there be not so much harmonization of the systems, but a mutual recognition of the systems. One of the problems that Boyden pointed to uh, quite, um, quite <coughs> accurately was that the EU system does not include uh, transport. And so there's no, probably not a leakage problem with airplanes since most airplanes go through Europe, uh, but uh, for other forms of transportation then the question might arise, could there be a price put on fuels as an alternative that would still bring things up to date? I raise this because my proposal um, is that there essentially be established and set up an informal working group, and I don't know what one calls it, but that really might work together on a very informal basis with Chatham House rules perhaps on the environment and trade issues, on the climate and trade issues, uh, because it's not clear that we want those captured in the WTO, but from the environmental perspective to have it either done in connection with uh, the climate change negotiations or have it done separately as something on which uh, progress, uh, in fact, could be made. With regards to forests and the, and the, um, uh, and the red, uh, and the red uh, proposals, I, th I think there's an important issue to keep in mind here, which is that doing something about economic development of the poorest of the poor is not the same as tackling the forest issue. Because tackling the forest issue means trying to make sure that the forests stay there or that they aren't degraded. Uh, and that the proposals for that would not necessarily mean that the poor people who live in the forests uh, and who need the benefits of economic development would in fact benefit from those kinds of proposals. And this again leads to some considerations by which we might consider uh, involving the many com forest companies, many of whom are in Europe, uh, in a way in which there would be a code of conduct um, that, might, that they themselves might come forward with, including the Asian countries there, on their practices uh, with relationship to either deforestation, degradation, but more importantly for forest harvesting, or for the conservation of forests. Because it's easy to talk about conservation of forests, but when one gets into the leases and the compensation for the leases and where the money goes in order to ensure that the forests are conserved, it's a different step than asking about how do we get poverty alleviation on the ground. So again, there may be some areas in which uh, dialogue may be able to take uh, place uh, there. Moving on to then to two more general issues very briefly. And that is, as of 1998, we had more than 1,200, no, more than 900 international legal instruments either binding or soft, what's called, called in Europe soft law, uh, but were essentially treated as, as having the force of a binding agreement that dealt with the environment, that had one or more clauses dealing with the environment. Today there are well over 1,200 of such legal instruments. And I think the question, uh, one important question is implementation and compliance with this. And compliance is just not enforcement and sanctions. Compliance includes 
the sunshine strategy, which is transparency, uh, letting other people uh, share in that knowledge and, and bring forces to bear. Sunshine, number of ways to do it, reporting on-site on -site visits, but it's also incentives for compliance. And you can track um, each of these strategies, which is really sanctions, incentives, and sunshine across all fields of international law. But particularly in the area of international environmental law, it may be that there's a useful way to, again, look at that question uh, in an important way. And my final um, uh, point would be, uh, and this is um, uh, really a general point, which is maybe it is really time to take the intergenerational perspective seriously, the lens. And particularly in the climate area, but in other things. Uh, so that um, there is a point person or point people, really, uh, uh, not necessarily governmental, uh, to be sure that long-term interests are identified and assessed. What difference would it make on the intergenerational lens? R&D becomes extremely important if it's not covered by the private sector or won't be covered by the private sector. Maintenance becomes, of the cost and ease of maintenance becomes a very important criteria when you look at criteria, criteria with, when you look at setting up of projects or municipal sewage waste treatment plants, um, uh, other things. There are efforts within countries to set up essentially that kind of representation of those interests uh, and is something that on a European Union and U.S. dialogue uh, might be done. Thank you. This has been the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Center podcast. Highlights from the symposium Law and the Environment, Designing a Transatlantic Agenda. Visit the Environmental Law and Climate Change Center and all the communities at www.lexisnexus.com communities. The LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Center podcast. Copyright 2009 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, total practice solutions.